hey, Evan. Hey, Joe. Hey, what time is it? It's time for another episode of Runtime Run Rundown. Let's go! Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Runtime Rundown, the show where we read the web dev news so that you don't have to. Uh, I'm Joe. I'm here with Evan. And today we are going to be reading uh, an article from Code Scene called Visualize Brooks's Law When More People Makes a Late Software Project Later. Uh, before we get into that, though, Evan, how are you doing? How was your week? It was great. Uh, let's see. Maybe great's a strong word. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking about the last time we spoke. We took a little break for the holidays. That's right. Uh, and yeah, quiet holiday for me in terms of celebration, unquiet holiday conceptually for me in terms of work. <laughs> I was on call Christmas day through conceptually and, uh, yeah. and practice was like the worst. That wasn't the worst, whatever. Here we are. <laughs> um, yeah, so good. My, you know, we've got some sickness in the household, so that's always Oof. one of those things. It's a two-partner household, so then it's just like when one person is sick, you know, you really uh, you help each other out. So we're 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 working through that. Uh, my poor wife, I wish her the best. She's probably going to listen to this, and hopefully by now you're healthy again and feeling better. I, I hope so. I have. Like two or this three weeks intro. from now, I hope yeah. I hope you're I hope you're feeling better too, Emily. <laughs> and I hope everybody's sleeping better after our episode on insomnia and stuff yeah. that we released, which was cool. It was like our first big kid episode where we had somebody that we like didn't know on the podcast. Yeah. It, it was yeah. legit. We had to we had to like coordinate an email and do sound checks and yeah. the whole That's thing. Great. It was we're big kids. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how are you, Joe? I'm good. Uh, yeah, we had we had a uh, a quiet week last week too with the with the holidays. Um, so uh, my five year old picked out the. Uh, so I'm not I'm not really like a big uh, a puzzle guy. I'm, I I don't do a lot of jigsaw puzzles. But when I go on vacation, I like to do jigsaw puzzles. It like puts me into a vacation mode where I just like do something with my hands and kind of like think about something but it doesn't matter in the slightest and uh it's like visual i just i really enjoy it on a vacation my five-year-old picked out the coolest star wars uh jigsaw puzzle for me it's like i saw all the pictures of all the other ones and i was like oh this one you got good taste so uh it's like uh it's like the empire strikes nice. back it's got darth vader it's, it's very um stark it's like <laughs> i'm like oh i don't know you're, you're kind of dark for a five-year-old but uh, it's it's really good. It's really fun. <laughs> good it's two thousand. Uh, I know it's two thousand pieces. So it t- basically takes up our entire dining room table right now. Um, so that's what I spent my week doing. Uh, also went up north to New Hampshire. We uh, with some friends for New Year's. We took a magical nighttime sleigh ride uh, on a farm up there. It was it was a plus uh, a plus uh, uh, holiday times. Wow. Uh, was it two thousand pieces? So wait. There's regular puzzles and there's jigsaw puzzles. And jigsaw puzzles can have odd they, they don't like look like puzzle pieces, right? Uh well, jigsaw puzzle is just like uh, a puzzle that it's like what you think of when you think of a puzzle that you put together with the little pieces. Like they're they not like the little circles and the squares. Because there's puzzles yeah. that are cut at odd shapes. Right. Yeah, there's that too. That's a whole What uh, are those called? Whole, I don't think there's a special name for them, but there uh, I read a book called The Puzzler by AJ Jacobs, who's written a couple other kind of like pop pop science 
pop culture books. And that's a good book, but he has a whole chapter on jigsaw puzzles. And like he goes to talk to people who make handmade jigsaw puzzles. And there's a lot of that. There's these like, um, you know, they're, they're all the puzzle pieces are all strange shapes. And there's one puzzle that, uh, has something like 10,000 possible combinations, but only one of them is the right one. So like there are 10,000 ways that this puzzle with all those weird shaped pieces will fit, but there's only one that like makes it right. Yeah. See that takes puzzles out of like Zen and into anxiety. And yeah. I feel like that. Yeah. Um, anyways, I also like I, the amount of people that puzzle on vacations is high. I feel, yeah. I, I know a lot of people like that. Um, I also like to do that. Puzzles are very, they can be relaxing and you flip them all over. It's very soothing. Something like Legos, something that is, uh, requires attention or needlepoint or sewing or, or, or like all those kind of like hand activities that give you sort of something to do and allow your brain to wander. I think yeah. those are really important. I actually don't have enough of those in my life. So I almost want to pick up like Legoing or something. Because it just gives you, your mind can work on stuff. Yeah. Speaking of Legoing and Star Wars, I really want one of those, like I have friend two, I have some friends who, similar to you, they don't have kids and they have they have two incomes. So they, they can buy these like the super <laughs> expensive Star Wars set. They uh they have the giant Millennium Falcon and the giant ATAT Walker. And I wanna Ooh. I wanna do those. I see those and I'm just like, I can imagine how many hours go into building those things. But like once so you fun. build it, then you just have a giant Lego ATAT in your house. <laughs> That's like, true. I don't want I don't want like a place in my house that just has giant lego figurines in it so i think i'd want to build it and then take it apart yeah and then give it to the next person so they could build it that seems yep. like a good we should make like there probably is this like a website for just like moving lego boxes around each other I because you don't want to just right we should look that yeah. up because yeah or even better yeah. smash it you you build it and then you smash that would be so just cathartic punch it. Just <laughs> yeah just <laughs> uh anyway so we've got a we've got a all right here yeah uh i think you have a question for me i do what you reading all right i am reading an article called visualize brooks's law when more people makes a late software project later. This is by Adam Tornhill, which is, that's a very classic sounding, something you could be like a British Duke or something like that. Yeah. Um, Duke, I'm uh, almost Duke positive Tornhill. there's a Duke Tornhill, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, he's got many lands. Um, <laughs> this is on the Code Scene blog. I have no idea what Code Scene is. Um, so I can't vouch for the product or anything like that, but it's an interesting article. Anyway, so... Um, this article does some nice visualizations around the concept of Brooks law. If you haven't heard Brooks law, it's just that like, th there's a, a great line for it. Adding human resources to a late software project makes it later. That's Brooks's law. That's it. <laughs> so this, this article gets into why that happens. Um, like a little bit about the phenomena itself. And maybe we can get into some of those topics as well. That's, that's yeah. Pretty much it. You just talk about Brooks's law. Yeah. The, uh, so Brooks's law comes from uh, uh, Frank Brooks, who is, or I'm sorry, Fred Brooks, uh, who wrote this book called The Mythical Man Month. Um, and it's like a pretty well-known book in software circles. It's a bunch of essays, but the 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 one from the title, The Mythical Man Month, is kind of the, the most well-known. And it basically describes what this article is talking about. Um, this article just kind of, I think, tr tries to put a finer point on it, tries to get a little bit of data behind it. Um, 
But yeah, the idea is is basically that you know I think that people have a preconception of of what's going to happen if you have a software project that you're like oh we have we have the software project um, even it might be a software project that like it's really clear cut how it's gonna how it's gonna go what work needs to be done uh, we just are projecting it to take a year and we want to do it in six months so let's add twice as many people to the project and. Um, in pr- in practice, that that is like you know, in theory, it's just uh, it makes sense, but in practice, it really tends to fall apart. And um, this article talks about, uh, and also that the the um, the essay talks about why that is. Um, so the the I think the three kind of main topics of this, which we'll get into, is um, is the 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 three reasons why this tends to break down is uh, you can be overstaffed. So it could be that the tasks aren't easily parallel parallelizable. Um, you can have tech debt and code health issues that slows down the team as a whole as the team gets bigger. And there could be onboarding costs. I think that we'll talk more about uh, each of these in, in this episode. Yeah. So I love the, um, there's like a great description here that I think is really useful. Uh, if you've ever talked to like a you know product manager, I don't want to throw them under the bus, but they're typically the people who I would get something from this, get like this from where you, you're behind on a project. You're like, okay, I, what if I just like give you Fred and Sally? Can you do it twice as fast? And you're like, no. Uh, <laughs> and that's because like each additional person adds a fixed number of additional hours. So let's say 40 hours. We just, the invariant is everybody's got 40 hours to work in a week, which is hilariously untrue for most, you know, like in most tech. But, anyways, let's start there. Hmm. Uh, as you add people, yeah, those amount of hours grow linearly. But the cost associated, like the amount of communication paths, expand mm-hmm. much more rapidly. So two people can talk to each other really easily. You just pop on a huddle. Uh, or whatever technology you're using, you can tap each other on the shoulder, do quick calls. It's very easy to coordinate two people, 80 hours a week. You add a third person. Yes, that's 120 hours a week. So like more raw horsepower. But now anytime you need to talk to everybody in the project, there's a third person to coordinate in a third schedule. And the chances of that overlap happening as easy as with two is much harder. Now that just that communication path friction is exponential versus the linear hours that you add. And if you've ever seen like people that take a car, if you're into cars and like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put 4,000 horsepower in this car. And then the car literally can't drive anywhere because the wheels <laughs> can't actually up, like apply the power to the pavement to move the car. And that's something what I think about with Brooks Law is like you could add a hundred developers, but if they don't know what to work on and if working on one thing makes merge conflicts in the other person's thing. So now they're spending you know, 20 of those 40 hours doing, you know, rebasing or something like that, or 20 of the 40 hours doing sync meetings. So they all know what the hell they're doing. Then it doesn't, you're not actually getting the 40 hours out of people. And the Brooks law, Brooks law then says like the gains in the hours available is consumed by the additional coordination of communication overhead. And then some, like it gets much worse potentially. Yeah, I think and and I think there's like a there's even more kind of behind that because it sort of assumes a fixed level of experience across your team. And you might have that. You might have a team of full of senior engineers, but what if you have one senior engineer and a bunch of junior engineers and then those junior engineers part of that coordination is 
maybe teaching me, you know, maybe they don't have experience in the domain that, that you need, or maybe they have different experiences in different domains and you kind of need to get them all on the same page. Like that's overhead. And I think, I think, uh, that, that just, uh, is, is one type of overhead that, that is an indicator of the other types of overhead. Um, one of the things this person says in this article is that software development is made up of complex interdependent tasks with a high degree of uncertainty. And the the interdependentness of the tasks, I think is, is probably a good thing to get into because when you work on a big project, maybe even like a not so big project, uh, you're, you aim for, uh, when you're when you're project planning, what you aim for the ideal situation is you have ten tasks, or however many tasks, but take ten, and they can all be done at the same exact time. You can start all of them in parallel, and none of them are are dependent on each other, or they're dependent on each other in a way that can be coordinated at the very end once they've all been done. That never happens. That's like that's what you want. It <laughs> never. I've never seen it happen because it's always one one task needs another task to be done before it can even be started. You can, maybe you could start one task, but there's going to be a gap where you're like, you know, I need, I could mock out this API, but I need the whole, I need the API to be ready in order to actually integrate it. And you can only kind of mock out so much. I don't made a bad example, but no, um, I think it's a good example. I was going to use something similar. So, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's like, you can do all of the sort of attempted parallelization you want, but you're going to end up at some point with some, some tasks that, uh, are just sort of uh, you have to do them in series instead of in parallel, and uh, th- that just means that if you have if as you add more people to that project, you're you're just going to have be have people be sitting there. You're gonna you know the more tasks that you have that need to be done in serial, you're not going to be able to have those people working, and so that's just sort of uh, it's a little bit simplistic maybe, but it, it's one. Uh, it's just one another way in which you're you're by adding more people, you're just not solving that problem because there are these bottlenecks. Yeah. Um, another part of that is those complicated interdependencies. And a person who owns a project, or you know, maybe it's one or two people, will have spent a lot of time ostensibly figuring those things out doing research and you can read through code and read through documentation a lot faster that you can then write that and say that back out. You internalize a ton of information. We're great intake machines. Uh, or maybe not the best you know, output machines. Um, so you've internalized all this complexity. You've got this whole vision in your mind and you write down quite a bit of it, right? You can write down your epic stories tasks. You can write some design documents, whatever all your artifacts are. It still will never be the whole picture. There's this uh, phrase I like to use when people are talking about um, I, I use this all the time when people are like saying, oh, I think that person's mad at me. And then you ask like, why? Uh, because like oh, their face looks, they're, they're not giving me the right answers. And I like to say the map of the territory is never the territory mm-hmm. itself. So you can look at a map of the white, the white mountains, like the, you know, the white mountain national park, and you can see all these trails and you, it looks like it's pretty easy to walk around. Then you get there. And you realize that the underbrush is so dense that like in the, 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 the area is so un- inhospitable that it actually isn't, right? So mm-hmm. like looking at someone's face and trying to read the tea leaves, so to speak, of how they actually feel and what's going on doesn't work. Same with software complexity, that I have all of this in my mind as a project owner because I have spent hours probably researching all these things. I've written down a lot of it. I've made the map. The map is not the territory. So when I go to bring somebody else in, 
it's not just that I give them the map. They can then go off and do something that is not wrong given what they know, but wrong given what I know. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to get all of that into them. And that's kind of like, that's the really tough part of software and anything really, but software is just, there's a lot of jazz in there. Like you're doing a lot of stuff, you know, it's doing a lot of things that are outside of what's expressly written down in acceptance criteria, because you're probably the one writing the acceptance criteria and you're writing it for you and the knowledge that you have, uh, you're, you're building assumptions into that written context. And it's really tough to bring other people into that. So you have to spend a lot of time and it's likely you'll never get it all into them and download all that information into their mind. And even if you do, the conclusions that you both draw from those, that information will likely be very different. So you you might come up with different outputs because of that. And then Mm -hmm. there's communication costs there as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like there's a certain amount of communication costs that comes in when you add more people to a project before they they even start the work but then but like what you're talking about can pop up after the work is already done you know it's like somebody does something that they thought they understood but it turns out they didn't understand the spec and so then they've done all this work and then now you have to re re-coordinate or throw away work or something like that and the chances of that happening probably increase exponentially with as you add more more people because of that exponential communication line growth um yeah just to jump in real quick there, it, and that means then you have to either trust and hope, or you have to be like in every decision and yep. reviewing every piece of code. And then the person who has the most expertise likely and the most subject matter knowledge becomes the person who outputs the least because they're reviewing everything else. So then you actually take the person who is probably best suited to deliver offline you know, if they want to have like omniscient knowledge of everything going on in the product. So the yeah. project, which is tough too. Sorry, I just, I just had to say that. No, I think it's a great point. I think, and it made me think of something else, which is the more psychological safety, the, the more familiarity your team has with each, with each other, the easier it is to bring that stuff up early because Absolutely. you can just, you know, if you, if you have a, if I have a question uh, about something that is uh, uh, like a DRI, directly responsible individual, who's the person who is responsible for driving a project, if I'm not that person, but I know the person very well who is, I can just go, I don't, I have no sort of psychological barrier to walk up to that person's, hey, hey, I don't, I don't understand this, uh, you know, do you want this done this way or this way? What are the, what are the trade-offs here? But if I'm new on a team and we'll get more into the onboarding costs a little bit later, if I'm new on a team, uh, I might be very uncomfortable ask, to, looking like I'm asking dumb questions. Um, and this is not speaking for myself. This is speaking for like anybody. You might, I think, I think anybody, no matter how comfortable you are asking, asking uh, dumb questions, there is friction to asking questions when you're new on a team and you're trying to make a good impression or whatever. Um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, I think that's a good point that, that you brought up. Um, there's one point that this person makes <clears throat> um, too, before we actually, I think, get into the like nitty gritty of some of these, some of these measurements and graphs, which is that, uh, the, like the effects of adding more people to a project, the, the sort of negative effects are, are opaque. Like you don't see those effects there. It's really hard to measure the, the drag that adding more people takes because you sort of assume a project is going to go quicker and you probably don't get the feedback that a project isn't going quicker until way later than you would expect to you know if you could see these things in real time and say oh we added 
four more people to, to this project and here it is a week later and we are actually seeing a decrease in productivity that's really different than we added four people to this project four months ago and now the project is still eight months behind schedule or something like that yeah and we always do this with like well, we're talking about an article and then we're just like yeah totally true yeah <laughs> I, I do want to make sure i just say the other thing which is i strongly believe that software is largely a team sport like i think there's a lot of value in having more than one person on a deliverable because it's really lonely out there when you're just yep. working by yourself all the time. So uh, I, I do believe in having more than one person. This is just like, you shouldn't add many more that aren't needed. Don't add yes. people that aren't needed. Um, and there's levels to this. So like you, you've got, I think at the scale of the deliverable, whatever that is, whether it's like I'm writing a React component or something like that, uh, maybe that's a one person job. If there's, you know, maybe it's a two-person job if someone's learning. Uh, but that scale of the deliverable then goes up. Like I'm delivering a feature that might have multiple components. That's probably two people could be good for that. They could talk to each other, have a quick line of communication. They could build a couple different pieces together and work together. If you're then scaling up, like I have, my feature is now multiple features. Like I'm talking about a user story that's going to need database work, this thing, this thing, this thing. At each one of those silos probably could have a couple of people on it. So you're not Brooks lawing yourself by having multiple people work on multiple pieces of a project. So it's always yeah. important to remember scale. It's at the level of deliverable, how many people are applied to that problem, how many are twiddling thumbs and how many are you know, hands on keyboard. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, that's, it's important to think about with the scales of these things. It is. Yeah. Cause we, I, I certainly am not advocating for like a single person team either. And there's like a U-shape uh, graph at the, one of the very first graphs of this is a U-shape graph. Cause it's like, it, and, and the, the axes are, um, number of, uh, number of teammates and, um, and time to completion. So it's like the, if you have one person working on a project, that's, you know, when I think about project, you talk about scale. I tend to think of like, if somebody says we're working on a project, I, t I typically think, okay, if they, if they don't say anything else, I'll probably say, okay, that probably would take between four and 12 weeks. You know, it's probably somewhere in there a month to three months. It's right there. Um, what I was thinking too. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like, uh, you have one person working on that. Yeah. That's going to take a lot longer than if you have three people working on it. Um, but if you have 12 people working on it, that's, that may take longer than if you had one working, one person working on it. So it's a U-shaped, U-shaped curve. Uh, I think that's a good call out though. Good, good thing to mention. Uh, so where do um, we go next? I, I guess we want to talk about one of these graphs or you want to talk about one of these delivery decline points or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's get into the, um, into the delivery decline points. So like, uh, we actually, we already talked a lot about the, the first one, this, this over overstaffed, which is basically when tasks aren't really parallelizable. Um, so yeah, maybe we talk a little bit about tech debt and code health. Um, this is something we've talked about a little bit before, but I, I think it, uh, it does probably, uh, increase the friction, the more people you add to the project, if there is some amount of tech debt in a project, which is causing any changes to the code, but you know, imagine you have maybe three people is like the ideal number of people to be working on this particular project. And, but this project has a lot of tech debt and it has, that means that these three developers have to do a lot of workarounds. Maybe they have to tread really carefully. They, maybe it's like not very well tested. So they have to like 
manually test their changes really well to make sure they're not breaking anything. Um, that's what I think of when I think of tech debt. It's like uh, something brittle, something that the developers are nervous to work on. They're not feeling very confident going into it. Um, I know tech debt has like different meanings to different people, but that's sort of what I'm picturing right now. As you add more people to that, that friction is just going to be multiplied by the amount of people that you have. It's it's going to, I don't know if it's going to, if that scale is going to go linear or, or exponential, but even if, if it scales, if the friction scales linear, linearly, um, you're going to just, it, it's, it's making the bottleneck longer, right? It's, uh, or wider. You're, you're <laughs> wasting more total time. So yes. when I think about technical debt, in ter- we talked about this ad nauseum, but I think about it in terms of Brooks Law, we're talking about how do I increase the speed of delivery of my project? One of the, one of the levers to pull is add more people. Um, now if you've added three people to the project where there used to be one and the code base has a lot of heavy technical debt, it's unlikely you're able to apply all three people to the technical debt. So then you're like spending one person on technical debt to like unblock the other two to be able to actually work in the project. So now you're wasting three people's time because those two other people, it's like the old thing when you drive by the DPW working on a road project, there's one person shoveling and three people watching them shovel. That's what you're doing here with technical debt. The more people you've added to the project. So it's just like a higher sunk cost. Mm -hmm. Um, also, sometimes when I think about technical debt in these terms or in this context, I think about like an area that's really complicated. Um, you know, someone's like you've built a really complicated abstraction maybe where you didn't need to. And and that's like technical debt in that it could have been simpler. It's hard to onboard on. It's hard to under, we, we have onboarding costs later, but for this context, it's hard to understand this area. So like people are cautious about working around it. So then you're not going to have high velocity for all three people. You might have one person who's good at this particular thing, but you've added two other people to the product project and they're not nearly as comfortable um, with this area because of like the high technical debt or high complexity or something like that. So then you've just added like a ton of extra friction because they're probably going to ask a lot more questions of the one person who is comfortable uh, with the area because they just, they're trying to get their work done and not look like dirt bags that aren't doing anything like <laughs> right. the whole sprint. Right. Uh, so they're just going to be like, Ooh, what do I do? And then they're going to ask this person and they're dragging, you know, they're like dragging that person down the water too. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Um, well, I think we can jump into the the third point, which is kind of, in my, uh, I guess in, in, in my opinion, maybe the, like kind of the biggest one maybe it's like the i don't know if it's the biggest one but it's maybe the the um the the one that can be the least considered maybe like it's it's like you don't necessarily think when i put four new people on this project uh those people are going to going to need to onboard even if they're you know i think in an ideal world if if you're a manager and you're like uh let me grab four people from another team uh, that might already have some kind of context over this project. Even then, like those people have not been working full time in this code base. There's going to be a non-zero amount of onboarding that needs to happen. And onboarding can really look like a lot of different things, but it all boils down to extra tax on their productivity on the, on the, I guess I should say on the time it takes them to become optimally productive. Um, and uh, uh, this this article has a few graphs toward the bottom that that we were talking about a little bit before before we started recording because like the graphs maybe aren't the uh, the easiest to sort of um, understand at a glance, but I think we we talked through them and like 
my takeaway from these graphs is they're basically just trying to quantify uh, the the tax of onboarding. So, like, I guess if I were to sum up the this graph in one in one sentence, it's like there is uh, there is a, a maximum. It, it's, sorry, it's a graph of uh, the cumulative experience of a team. So it's like if you if you have a team who's firing on all cylinders, that's like a maximally experienced team and they're they're maximally productive. So you have this 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 line up at the top of the graph that is increasing linearly and it's the maximum possible experience. You know, as your team members stay on a stable team, they get more experience in the code base and they're able to work more efficiently. Um the down below that there is this blue line which is uh, it's kind of hovering much lower, and that blue line represents the actual experience. It's like the the, the qualitative team experience, and so there's this gap, uh, and the gap tends to grow the more. And this is way longer than one sentence. I said it was going to be one sentence, but that wow. gap, that, <laughs> it's one long run-on sentence. Um, that gap tends to grow as your team experiences turnover. And that's the thing that whether you bring in new people on or whether you have some people leaving and new new team members coming, uh, that turnover causes this this very real tax because like I, you know I'm fairly new to the team that I'm on and I wish I could be as productive as you know as as I wish I could just jump in and start uh, being you know super productive as productive as I know I could be but I just there's so much to learn in a new code base and in a new organization and, you know, on a new team, team dynamics and things like that. There's just a lot that gets in the way of being optimally productive. So anyway, I think these graphs are just kind of trying to put a visual to that idea that like there is a real cost to onboarding. Yeah. So, I mean, all, all well put, I, I was starting, as you were describing that, I was thinking about this common, this is an aside, but an accessibility problem where people write alt text or ARIA labels for things and like go way overboard describing <laughs> uh, because they think, you know, a blind person needs like 10 times more information apparently in the layout. <laughs> but no, it was, it was good. Um, okay. Onboarding in the context of accelerating projects or Brooks law. Um, ideally on your team, everybody is omniscient in terms of the code base. Everybody has the same level of knowledge of the entirety of the code base. Everybody has the same level of knowledge of all of the projects ongoing. And you only have like four people, and this is a magical unicorn world, where any person could interchangeably walk to any of the other things and be productive on it. What I'm describing has never happened in the history of the world. Or maybe it has. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it has. So even on projects, when we say like you have three people on a project, I have never in my life seen those same three people start and finish a project. What inevitably happens is like person B has to go on vacation in the middle of it. Person C is a subject matter expert on some random other thing that lights on fire in the middle of it and they have to mm -hmm. go. And then you're just like, ooh, okay, I'll grab person D who hasn't done this yet. But because you have like, you know, delivery deadline and they, they give you three headcount for it. So then you have to pull in that extra person for like two weeks and then pull in this person for a month or something like that. And there's no one that knows the entire, unless you're working on a really small thing, there's areas of a code base you've never touched or you really don't, you're not familiar with. So as you're rotating pieces through, that headcount's not stable or rarely ever stable. So that onboarding cost is very real in the project where like how much time are you spending 
to get the third person in because you were assigned three people versus if you just went down to two and allowed that to be okay, right? Because that third person is like, okay, now they have to onboard the project, meaning like they have to learn what you're doing and they they might have actually paid attention in your standups or not. They might have no idea what you're doing. And then you have to onboard the area of the code base, which they may or may not have expertise in. And any other stuff about like new things you're trying to build, new new things that person A and person B are building that will affect you down the road. There's like a ton of context, a fire hose of information, even for a medium-sized project for someone to just walk into. Uh, and that cost is like, it's very real if it happens more than one time. And it's likely it's going to if you've got like three people on a project, especially now scale that up to like 10 people. Now you've got you're, – you're like, okay, we're going to give you a whole – squad of people to work on this thing. It's like, oh my gosh, because it's very mm -hmm. likely that there's rotating a lot of rotating pieces and you're constantly onboarding. And then it's someone's like full-time job to just be like syncing people together, yeah. giving them information that they need and stuff like that. And that's like a project manager. Um, but that's probably going to be one of your engineers doing that. Right. Yeah. It's either one person who's trying to sync everything or but what I think is probably more more realistic is that you know if you have if you have seven new people and three people who have been there for a long time those seven people are going to be asking a lot of questions to all three oh, of yeah. the of the people who have been there for a long time and so it's not just one person who is who has this tax of where they're trying to coordinate it's the three people who are most who should be most uh you know most productive on the project have a lot of uh, they're they're taking a lot of time out of their day to answer questions to the people who are onboarding um Oh, you look like Hopefully, you they're asking that. good questions by listening to our episode about how to ask good technical questions. Yeah, there you go. The <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I was going to say the 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 closest I've come to uh, what you're describing. Oh, I, I was going I was going to start by saying that uh, you know it kind of goes back to to show how important stability is in a team. Um, low turnover, and it's something that I think is like under discussed especially with all the recent layoffs in, in the tech industry and kind of, you know, people come, you know, just a lot of turnover. Um, stability on a team is like the, it's the silent hero of a team. It's like, because uh, what I was, you know, what, coming back to what I was going to say, um, the time that I have seen this uh, get closest to what you describe, which is where anybody can pick up any work on a team and it's all, they're all going to be optimally productive. Um, was on the team that we were briefly on together for a time, but that was that I was on for for a number of years, and I was on it with a with most of the same people for a number of years. You know, there was somebody, one person who I was on the team with for the entire you know for five years together, and that was a team where we had uh, we had implemented a few. Um, a few project planning things and a few sort of like uh, process things in our in our uh, in our weekly sprint planning or Kanban board, whatever you whatever however we were working at the time, um, where we would just be able to pick up the top ticket that was in the backlog at any time. You know, we we only had um, I forget how many tickets we had in our in our weekly backlog. It was like fifteen tickets for five of us or something like that, and any one of us. The, the the sort of standard operation standard operating procedure was when it's your when, when you're done with whatever work you're working on just pick up the top ticket off of that to do list and it gave everyone you know a, an amount of confidence and 
understanding of the whole code base of all of these projects that we owned that we never would have gotten if we were sort of siloed into our own, uh, well, I work on this and I work on this. And, and it's like, it just gave everybody a lot of knowledge about, about, uh, the whole code base. And I think that like the, you know, if there is a downside to that, it's that you maybe don't have anybody who is a like particular subject matter expert, but I actually didn't see that happen. I think we were, we all became deep subject matter experts in, in a lot of these tools that we were maintaining. Yeah. I think you had a great situation there. There's like the old team gelling argument where like, yeah, if stability, team stability is the, um, the silent hero team stability or like group stability on a project is a silent hero too, that you've got a couple people cooking on something, you know, maybe three people, two people cooking on something for a long time. They likely were going to develop, especially if it's like a three month project. Um, you know, I've got something like this recently where I was working with basically one, like one other person, we were delegating some smaller tasks out. Um, but we worked on something for like two and a half months together and we kind of had like a develop like a shorthand communication style. Like you really, you know, when that person's online, you know, when they like to work, you know, the way they like to work, mm-hmm. you, you, you learn a lot about the person behind the, the keyboard, which is really important for working with somebody. I think this gets lost in tech for yes. some reason. They think we're like interchangeable cogs or something like that. And this sounds like super platitudinal, but we're still people, you know, you still need to know. Uh, a lot about a person to work well with that person. We can't just add fingers on keyboards and the amount of code you output is like great and just scales. It really doesn't work like that. Like you wouldn't imagine if you're on a construction crew or something like that, you just like add one more person that's just going to be great. You build twice as fast. No, you don't know anything about that person. You don't know how they work. So when you do have that, the right number of people for the right period of time, um, man, it's like, it's like a whole, it's a multiplier. It's a force multiplier because I can shoot conversations to that person. I likely can just say, you take this, I take this. And then we play to each other's strengths. We cover each other's weaknesses. Your downsides are mitigated. Your upsides are, are multiplied. You know, that's like such a good feeling. And then yep. we've also been in situations. I've been in a situation where you had that and then powers that be were not happy with the speed of the delivery. So they're like, okay, I'm going to give you two more people. And then you're like, oh, like, mm-hmm. God damn. <laughs> so then you got to go, then you have to do all of what we said. You have to then take all this knowledge that's shared between you two in your secret language, you know, and all the knowledge that you have on different stuff, you got to write it down. So like go, okay, yeah. stop five days and go like write everything down. And then they have Which- to onboard on the code base. Which, to be fair, is really valuable. Like, it, it, I do see a lot of value in taking that shared sort of like uh, tribal knowledge and and writing it down, documenting it. I think that does help everybody. But you're at right at the like right it, time. It, at the yes. right time, though. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't say stop in the middle of your project and write down what you know now because it's right. likely that doesn't persist. So I'd say at at the right intervals, likely near completion before delivery that's when you say, let's take a snapshot of what we learned and what we built and write an ADR, you know, make sure that our documentation is up, uh, make sure that everything is tested, make sure that all this like weird decisions are written down in our ADR log or something like that. And, and yes, put that down. Yeah. Uh, but I wouldn't say like, you know, take all of your knowledge and write it as if it's an artifact in the middle, because so much of that's going to go. And then you're going to spend a lot of time writing a change log for that because that uh-huh. document is like wrong the next day. 
That's a good so point. That, and, and it yeah. kills the momentum if it's in the middle of a project. It just it it can it can be a real momentum killer. It does. And I, I agree with you. So like that is, you know, I agree with you. You do want to write as much stuff down. And I'm a big, big proponent of documentation. I think what I've learned maybe over time is that like documentation, less documentation, but written at the right time is more valuable than more documentation written at any time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's like, okay, you have process for this. Like, you know, an ADR log, uh, architecture decision record log. So like the decisions we made that were critical to this project after we made them when they're done, I could put those in a log and they're not going to be litigated anymore. So I know they're not going to change. And like, I can write them as they are. And then yep. I can take knowledge about the design and that's in a design document. And like, I, you know, that is edited at the end of the project to make sure that it's reflective of the state and that goes out, you know, stuff like that. And that the code is yeah. obviously commented, but, but doing there's, all that in the middle can be tough. It can. Yeah. There's something that I did recently that I want to do more of in the middle of working on a project, which is like take quick notes for myself about my own thought process, working through this, you know, technical problem. And I was just kind of like putting my own thoughts down, jotting them down. Now, they were not for anybody else. They weren't cleaned up or anything, but it was really useful. Then when I did go finish the project to say, oh, now I can sort of uh, digest this and, and, and put it into external documentation. I can use it as an explanation, either in my PR or, you know, maybe actual like put it documentation somewhere, but it's like, uh, it was, it was really helpful. It, it was sort of doubly helpful. It was helpful in the, in the short term for helping me sort of vocalize the the thoughts and, and clarify my thinking at the time, but then it was also helpful after the fact. So yeah, there are ways to do it, but it's like, yeah, adding more people in the middle of a project is, is maybe not, maybe not the, the, the best way to speed it up. Uh, I had a thought while I was reading this, which is like, okay, Okay then, Mister Smarty Pants. What is the what is the best way to speed up a project? And like, I don't really have a good answer to this, but like, you know, imagine you're you're in that position where you have leadership coming to you and saying, "Hey, this project is taking longer than we thought. Uh, we're we want to add a couple more developers to this to this project. Like, what would you know? What would the the ideal response be if if you know that adding more developers at that point in that project, you just you can you can sense that it's gonna slow the project down in the long term. Like I'm trying to think, you know, cutting features is like the, the first thing that I, that I sure. thought yeah, of. Cut requirements. Like, trim yeah. scope. Yeah. Um, yeah. Trim scope. Wait, was this rhetorical? Did, did you, it was sort of rhetorical. Yourself? I mean, if you have a good answer, then like, great. But like, I, it was, I, it was to, I got a lot rhetorical. of thoughts. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. In the tier of things that I would recommend first is, uh, trim requirements. But trim requirements only to the point of a minimum lovable product. Yeah. Not you're delivering like because if you deliver something fast and no one wants it, yeah, there's no point. So yeah. like, can, can, are there some things that you can look at as priority zeros, P zero requirements that the collection of those P zeros is minimum lovable product that someone will like that and use it. Um, can you trim away what would be P1s? So to phase two of the development, uh, get the first thing out, get it in people's hands, and then you have a couple things that maybe you push off. And if you can do that, do that. And that should actually be a quick discussion. You know, you could you could probably do that in an afternoon. Like go talk, look at the project scope, go talk to the product manager, project manager, and the you know your UX person, whoever's on your team of on the racy chart, the responsible parties and say like, Hey, is any of this stuff that we can reasonably cut? If you can't do that, you have a couple other levels, levers. 
One is maybe you probably, if you are working very solo or with like two people and there is someone on your team that does have pretty good context in this area and is like relatively tuned into your project and would, and like this would be a, you know, a cost you're willing to spend to get their hands on your project, then yeah, bring somebody in, but don't just arbitrarily add people. Now, if that's not going to work, because that's an unlikely scenario, I would say your other levers are probably going to be things like, um, well, two, two come to mind. One is reducing your quality barrier. So mm-hmm. like to a point, if you have an extremely mm-hmm. high quality barrier, um, you could look at quality as how much friction is this causing the development process and how much of that could I reasonably pull away if you care about speed. So, and you have to make that trade off explicitly Mm -hmm. and push that up front and say, here's what you're going to spend down the road because of this. We're going to have to come back around and fix this. This is technical debt. Tech debt. Yeah. Like that's like, that is a a a definition of tech debt. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. But senior, like, you know, this is the joke. The junior engineers make that choice accidentally. Senior engineers (laughs) make that choice explicitly, but the same thing is true at the tech debt remains. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you could do, you could just like make the choice to make technical debt. You can do that though with varying degrees of danger. For instance, you could uh, get code behind a feature toggle. So you can ship code to production and remove uh, like the rebase problem or something like that. So you, you're mm-hmm. changing some of the other parameters. Like what is your biggest slowdown is like, oh, we're working off of a feature branch. We're all hitting each other with merge conflicts all the time. How do I solve that problem? Like, let's let's get a feature toggle, ship code to production. You're constantly working off of main. You're reducing the the instance of rebase conflicts. You buy yourself an extra five hours a week or something. Uh, and the same goes with the technical debt. Uh, like your quality bar is, you can have a lower quality bar shipping behind a feature toggle, uh, like that. You know, you can just turn off because then if it breaks, you can turn it off. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're shipping code to production, that's just sitting out there. And like will be turned on someday, but the code isn't safely contained. Um, or you're like shipping pieces to a feature branch, and then one day you just yeet the whole thing into production. <laughs> you don't know. Uh, so I would say that there are some ways to like mitigate the downside of technical debt, and one of them is contained, like basically, you know, sandboxing your code behind a feature toggle, getting it to production, so that people can pull off of a mainline branch and reduce the sort of friction costs associated with multiple people developing in the same code. Uh, and then you can ship with less quality, quote unquote, that you're willing to tolerate because you have uh, an exit mechanism on that uh, feature. So you can just turn it off if it's breaking. Uh, so those are some thoughts. Yep. Yeah. I think that the feature toggle solution is like a an underutilized way to to mitigate risk. Maybe not underutilized, but like it's a really good way to mitigate risk. I remember... Uh, I remember one of the first projects, one of the first auxiliary engineering projects I did uh, was pretty, you know, it was pretty early in my, in my career at the time. And I was kind of like new to the, the idea of shipping to production every, basically every day was like kind of new to me at that point. And so, uh, I was, I was advocating for this idea and I was sort of like, well, how would that, how does that work? Where like, what if you don't have your feature totally ready? What if you, what if you don't have the project totally ready before you ship to production? It's like, well, you put it behind a toggle and then when it is, when that feature is ready, you just turn the toggle. As oh, okay, I, I get it now. That's how you can be doing what you're saying, which is getting code into uh, into the main branch of your repo, which has like all these other benefits. You know, uh, 
I think that that's one of the one of the things we didn't really talk about too much is the actual logistical challenges of having more people on a project of like uh, having people merge conflicts, you know, period merge conflicts with 12 people are going to be way more, uh, more taxing than merge conflicts with three people. Um, but anyway, I think those are great points. Those are, uh, those are good points that you made about, I, I did ask it mostly rhetorically, but I, I just kind of knew you were going to have a good answer for that. <laughs> I got one last thought though on this, which is, yep. Uh, depending on where you are in your career, you know, I, it, but if you're running a project and you're talking about headcount, it's likely you're at the point where you're, you know, some sort of lead leader position. Um, remember that it is part of your job to be a representative of your code base in your engineering group, even at the small scale, even if you're like just developing features for your team and you're a you know, mid-level engineer or something like that. It is still your job to be a steward of your code base and engineering in general. Um, not to say you go overboard and like we have to build everything perfectly, but if you're getting heavily pressured by you know, your product manager or whatever, your manager to like, we need to cut this delivery by two months, um, push back to like, you don't just say yes. Uh, I, I know this, this is kind of a weird aside, but I, I don't want people to just say like immediately assume that your job is to just say yes to that mm -hmm. and figure out how to make it happen. If you've got a strong case about why this is going to be bad for you long-term, not that you're like precious about your code base, but that you're looking at, oh, they want you to cut a lot of quality out. And mm -hmm. you know they want you to get this done two months faster by cutting a, a, enough features out that the product no longer makes sense at the end of the day. You should feel like you should say that, have, have backbone, but have backbone and disagree, right? Like just, just state your case and spend a little bit of time to kind of write down what the downsides would be of those things. Um, and at least put that out there before you, you know, you just say like, okay, okay. Yes. How do we make it faster? It's like, should we, yep. and are the choices that we're making the right ones? So I just want to say that out loud. I think that's a great point. And it reminds me of a topic that uh, is near and dear to both of our hearts, which is uh, the legend of Zelda. And you think about, I mean, Nintendo in general, they're kind of, I think somewhat famous for uh, having long release cycles. They have like a long time in between games. And a lot of times those games get pushed back. I know Tears of the Kingdom got pushed back for a number of months, but it's like when it actually, it, when it actually releases, it's so good. Oh, the so quality good. is so high and pe no, everybody forgets about the fact that they waited for so long for it to come out because once it's out, it's out. And it's like, you know, it, it, there there is a, a certain value to that too. It's not like um, other games get get a reputation. I'm I nothing's coming to mind, but I also don't want to like Call of Duty. You know, yeah, Call of Duty. Okay, I, I don't I don't know about I don't know about like any any really. I mean, I know about Call of Duty, but uh, sounds like it suffers from what I'm about to say, which is like you release it as quick as you can, and then you like follow it up with a bunch of patches. Except the first impression people get is like, oh, this game's broken, or like, oh, this game's oh broken. Cyberpunk is probably a good Cyberpunk, example of that. That's, yeah, that's Cyberpunk 2077. Yeah. They come out and it's like devastated. Then they had to pull it from the marketplace. Yep. And then like a year later, release a version that is beloved. But no yep. one goes back. It's really hard to get people back. That first impression is really hard to get twice. Exactly. So, all right. Well, I think that's going to bring us to the end of, uh, of that segment. So uh, head on over to codescene.com and read this article if you're interested in more, if you're interested in actually seeing the graphs instead of hearing me describe them in vivid so detail. Well. 
vivid detail. Uh, all right, with that, uh, Evan, I'm going to ask you a question. What are you learning? What are you learning? I am leak coding. That's all. I don't have any. <laughs> I don't have like a good what am I learning? Um, let's see. Yeah, pretty much just like doing leak code stuff. Uh, That's all right. You know what? Today is going to be a non-learning day because I have a. I don't have a what are you learning either. So if I mean, if you have anything okay, else to two. say about leak code, just, go for it. doing leak code uh, sucks. Of doing it again, just you know, you gotta you gotta stay frosty. Uh, yeah. You never know when. You know, the whole whole engineering department could just get fired, damn Who knows? <laughs> but so staying frosty. Uh, the other thing I'm learning is um, a game called Ghost of Tsushima. This is really like weird, but um, Ghost of Tsushima is a P- PS5 game. Unbelievably good. Joe, uh, you should get it. Uh, it's like an open world samurai game. And it is so, so, so good. And my wife and I have been playing this on like the lethal plus difficulty level. So it's become wow. a Souls-like game. It's just like getting crushed over and over again. So learning high level advanced techniques for doing samurai duels in this game uh, where like the AI is highly advanced and will like learn from your attack system. So like oh, wow. changing stances, learning different attack styles to try and trick the AI Man, that, so that's that's definitely a learning experience. We had one the other day where it, it, I think I played it maybe 40 times, probably like 40 attempts and finally beat it in the last one. And I was just like had this moment of unbelievable elation. So that's um, wasting time on both Lee Code and Ghost of Tsushima. Nice. Uh, I love that feeling where you, so I, I had a similar experience with, I'm replaying Hollow Knight, which I think we, t- I don't think we talked about on the podcast, but we, no, we did but I talk about Hollow Knight. Yeah. That is one of my favorite games, Hollow Knight. And it's a notoriously hard game. It's a platformer. It's like, doesn't look like very much, but uh, no, it's sorry. Not that it doesn't, it is a beautiful game. That's one of my, that's one of my favorite things about it, but it's just like, looks like a typical platformer. Um, but it is, really hard and controls are really tight and uh it is the same thing there are some of these it's it's got a bunch of bosses and some of these bosses took me like you know dozens and dozens of 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 attempts and then when you finally get it it's so satisfying that's that's so sweet yeah uh let's see what am i so yeah so i don't have uh what are you learning this week but i have a uh, what are you listening to so i had a podcast recommendation i've been listening to this podcast called um the wedding scammer and uh, I think it's on, I think it's like a Spotify podcast, but uh, it's really interesting. It's, it's like a, it's a true crime podcast by this guy. Part of the reason why I like it is because the host is from uh, Providence. So like he lives in LA now, but he's got like this sort of Providence, uh, uh, Providence accent and like kind of the, he's got like nice. kind of the East coast <laughs> vibe. Um, but uh, he's great. So basically, uh, he got scammed by this guy when he worked at uh, a news outlet, like an online news outlet that this guy had started. And then this guy went on, he like changed his name a couple times and he went on to go be a, a wedding caterer, basically. And and he scammed all, the other, all these other people out of like thousands and thousands of dollars. And so this journalist, the host, goes and tries to find this guy. And he basically tries to like, you know, uh, get... Uh, justice, or at least understand better why this guy did what he did. And um, ju- it's just a great podcast. It's like a seven episode contained series. And uh, I recommend it, The Wedding wedding Scammer. 
That's awesome. I love stuff. There's, there's like uh, episodic um, releases. Those are cool. Yeah. yeah. And nice. with that, I think we can, uh, let's see, we can find the sound effects for. <laughs> ah, there we are. Yes. There we are. Yeah. We can lower the old blood pressure and sail away on the good news cruise. All right. Let's well, uh, I always feel like I have to talk like an NPR radio host when we get to the session. Evan Cooper filling in for Tom Hardy, <laughs> filling in for Evan Cooper, who is currently on safari. Uh, the what? What is your good news? Because I went first with what am I learning? You did. So my good news, speaking of NPR, is an article from NPR. Uh, it, it, the headline is the Met Museum, so Metropolitan Museum of, uh, of Art in New York City, is returning looted ancient art to Cambodia and Thailand. Um, this, I just, it, you know, in in the the modern day, you know, more in recent times, I think people are looking a little bit more closely at art in museums and thinking about where that art came from and how it was acquired. And I, I just think that's a good thing for people to be looking at. Um, and in this, you know, I, interestingly, speaking of podcasts, there is a, a, a series in on Freakonomics about this exact thing about art that comes from, comes to museums from various places. And it's actually more complicated, I think, than you might think, because the original owner of that art isn't always clear cut, like who it goes back to. Um, the art might be going back to a, an unstable place. And so like, how do you balance sort of the, the returning the art to its rightful owner with the uh, preservation of that art? There's just, it's a, it's a bit more complicated than just, yes, send it all back to the place that it came from. But, uh, it sounds like in this case that, that it is pretty clear cut and the, the Met is going to return 16 ancient artifacts back to Cambodia and Thailand. Um, they're mostly sculptures and they had been looted from those countries years ago during decades of civil war and unrest. So, um, Wow, just a little sweet. Bit of, yeah, a little bit of good news there. That is good news. Now we just need all of Britain's museums to give their stuff back and <laughs> we're know. good to go. Uh, shout out to the uh, What about you? People. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. um, yeah, okay, simple one. Number of electric school buses more than doubled in the United States in the past year. Wow. So, uh, according to the World Resources Institute, number of electric school buses operating or delivered in the U.S., Went from 598 in 2022 to uh, almost 1,300 through June of 2023 and continuing to go, which is really cool that they're serving school children while providing cleaner air in now 40 states across the United States. Mm. I think school bus is actually a perfect use case for yeah. uh, electrification because we know where they start and end. It's like a parking lot. You could probably build charging stations for them. Their yep. routes are planned so they know like how much um, range they're going to need. Uh, it's lower maintenance costs, stuff like that. The whole thing makes sense. So really excited to see that. Uh, it's just a good little bit of good news. Easy peasy. That's great. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, with that, I think we can get out of here. We said 42 minutes before we started the show. Ended up Woof. not quite hitting it. We, I, dear listeners, you are really, we thank you for, for sticking with us. My God. Always, yeah, yeah. Our, our shows always end up being about an hour. And I'm always like, when I look at an hour show in my podcast listener, I'm like, mm, that's kind of long. 
So that's so, no uh, for me. Yeah, I just yeah, say so, no. I so listen to like you. eight minute podcasts. Like that's I my know. that's my sweet spot. Uh, okay, we'll wrap this up. Thank you, dear listener, for making this far. As Joe just said, it is really a, it's a pleasure to have you here and a marathon to get here. Uh, please head on over to runtimerundown.com and comment on any episode. We just got a comment from our buddy Dan. We got I got to respond to on our sleepless in tech episode, uh, and I will respond. And we definitely do so. Send us a suggestion at runtimerundown.com slash suggestions or comment on any one of the episodes. Uh, also head on over to Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, uh, Pocket Casts, any of the other podcasters and give us a rating there. Uh, and if you can't do that, just let a friend know that we exist. And if they like friend and development or just tech stuff in general, um, tell them to give them a listen. Uh, like I said, we'll never charge for this thing or make any money off of this thing, but we do like to see those listener numbers bump up because we're just humans. We're just humans. We just want to <laughs> see people people listen to us. Uh, Joe, what do you got? Uh, I think you said it. I think you said it all. Uh, I will say, well, except for one thing, which is that, dear listener, I hope you have a wonderful week ahead. And Evan, I hope you have a wonderful week ahead. And we will see you right here next week. See you next week.